The topic of this evening's uh, Dhamma talk is wise concentration, with concentration finding its way into a number of the lists of the Buddha's teachings. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's uh, one of the five controlling faculties along with faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. And when these um, five controlling faculties come to maturity, they become the five spiritual powers. So concentration is also one of the five spiritual powers. And beginning the talk with three Pali words, sila, samadhi, panya. These uh, Pali words translating into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom. These three form the branches of mental development that are essential to all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of heart, of mind, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes, comes about through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. The insight of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, the insight of dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences, and the insight of anatta, the impersonality of all material and mental phenomena of existence. These three insights are the profound insights that, in fact, lead one onto the final liberating insights. In the Buddha's words, as he very often did, he starts with a question, and then he goes on to answer his question. So, in the Buddha's words, a question. If concentration, samadhi, is developed, what profit does it bring? And he goes on to answer this question. The mind is developed. He starts another question. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And his answer, all lust is abandoned. Then another question he asks, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And his response to himself and to those listening to him is, wisdom is developed. And he goes on, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And his response to his own question is, all ignorance is abandoned. 
And so concentration or samatha or samadhi and vipassana, insight practice, in particular alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of sila, of virtue, as they deepen and as they mature within us, we come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on a very deep level, and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. Intimately connected uh, to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us are our habits of attraction, which include greed, clinging, and attachment, and our habits of aversion, which include worry, resistance, anger, fear. And the identification with these states of mind. These habits, these habits of mind, are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly suffering. And the word for this in Pali is samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and consequently keep us from awakening, keep us from liberation. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Iraq, dogs, Barrie, Massachusetts, France, Lumbini, thoughts, feelings, rain, New York City, one's aging body, the sun, sunshine, uh, your favorite restaurant, the Amtrak train uh, system, etc., etc., <laughs> are understood or regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence, our 
understood or regarded as being without any separate, solid self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, to part the veil, so to say, to untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which are rooted in mindfulness. In speaking to Ananda in the Kimata Sutta, the Buddha again asks a question and again proceeds to answer it. He says, What is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And his response to this question is, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose and joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose and rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose and serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose and pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose and concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arhanship, to the consummation of the end of suffering. And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said this. He said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Just as the Buddha did, we need to learn directly from our own experience and often from some of our most difficult experiences and maybe also from what we might deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter and pleasant and beautiful and subtler experiences. We could say that purification of the mind is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this this evening, taking a look at the active force of samadhi, the active force of concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration.
the process of gathering in, the process of gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily, as I'm sure everyone knows, quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining in the mind from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. One of of the important aspects of uh, this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind. Rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over and over again by whatever breezes waft in upon it from the sense doors and from its own unconscious. So in light of this, we can ask ourselves a question. Does your mind control you? Or do you control your mind? So, for instance, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind wanders off with the very slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. And one of the really wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a particular chosen object is a skill that can be learned. Like any other skill, by practice, patient repetition, and gradual development. The Vesudhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist, Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of very graphic Um, metaphors to describe the process, the development, and the act of concentration. And I'd like to share just a couple of these with you. And the first is, uh, the bee follows up the scent of a flower, then dives towards the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, we could say before diving into it, before absorbing into it. So this is used in the Vasudhimaga as a metaphor, metaphor for preliminary access and absorption concentration. Another metaphor um, in the Vasudhimaga that I particularly relate to because of my own experience in making pottery on a potter's wheel is this one. A lump of clay 
sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed, focused attention of body and mind. Staying, sustained attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continuous, continued focus of attention, one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, and the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the primary object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth and up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So if any of you have ever uh, tried to work on a potter's wheel, you have a little taste of what I'm trying to describe here, or what the Vasudhimaga tried to describe. So quite a graphic and quite a visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, moving into deeper and deeper states of samadhi, possibly into jhana states. The power of a clear, relaxed and focused mind, a concentrated mind, brings together and stimulates or re-stimulates itself again and again. It re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, calm. And it's quite an energizing and quite a refreshing and often a beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and the beautiful current of samadhi, of concentration, I think that it would be helpful to begin to explore and and learn a little bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, they can't grow when unwholesome mind state, the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. So seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential 
for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So, for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, maybe the rising and falling of the movement of the breath in the belly or the sensations of the in and the out breath in the area of the nostrils as examples. And if you're anxious and you're worried during the process, calm and joy will be prevented from arising because we're slaves, enslaved by worry. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought. To, one needs to be willing to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing, we could say, to cut through thought. Even thoughts that might seem so very important in the moment. And in relationship to this, it's very important to note here that it isn't about kicking out thoughts. It's not about booting out thoughts. Kicking out or booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. So aversion is a primary occurrence at that point. What is meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention. And seeing and knowing when the attention gets muddled or gets lost in something other than what is intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Because, as we all know, the mind can get lost in myriad, mundane, and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, over and over again, thinking that whatever it is, is really very important. During a three-month concentration jhana retreat that I uh, sat with Venerable Pawaksayadaw some years ago, I had um, such an experience. For the first week of, of that retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea. I would take two or three uh, loose teas and mix them together in a, in a tea ball for my fancy cup of tea, thinking that this was really an important and seemingly necessary treat that I needed, that I wanted. After about a week of doing this, I noticed that there was a box of tea bags sitting uh, on the counter right in front of me with one of the same kinds of tea in it uh, from my fancy mix. It had been sitting there every day, but I hadn't uh, noticed it. I hadn't connected to it with a clear attention until that moment. And the thought came up when I noticed it, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seemingly need, is this really important? Well, very right away, quickly, the answer, no, came. It's not at all important. 
It's merely a habitual distraction. So that day I made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag and enjoyed it. It was just fine. What happened after this uh, what was, was what was really important. Quite spontaneously at times, throughout the rest of this three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions uh, and in relationship to various thoughts and to various thought patterns. And the answer almost always if not pretty much developing into almost 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously became no. And I would just then simply let go of whatever it was at that point. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing uh, fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the mind and the heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Classically, the development of concentration and jhana is described as the purification of the mind. As the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or samadhi, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all of the hindrances. It considerably weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind. When calm and joy, tranquility, blissful happiness, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration, when they manifest, when they clearly begin to manifest, the hindrances, these unwholesome states of mind, are temporarily completely eliminated. As well as being profoundly weakened in the long term. Particularly if one's concentration develops and deepens, continues to develop and deepen. And even more specifically so, if one has the inclination towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana states. So taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of developing and deep concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the development of concentration, and that also hinder the unfolding of insight. So to begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. 
calm and tranquility, free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again to a particular object. The word for this in Pali is vitaka. With the establishment of the mind on an object, for instance, such as the sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils, the anapanaspat as it's sometimes called, or the attention to the movement of the breath in the belly, the rising and falling movement. This eliminates dullness, sleepiness, and stiffness. Eventually. Not, it's not a, an immediate experience. <laughs> the sustained application of the mind, uh, continuous sustained attention on the object, whatever the object may be, and in Pali the word for this is vichara, this eliminates uncertainty. It eliminates doubt. The deeply concent- concentrated state of joyful zest a bright happiness, an elation in the mind, resulting from the development, the developing purity of heart and mind. And in, in Pali, the word is piti. This brings uh, a delighted interest in and liking of the object of attention, for instance, as such as the breath, with the development of deepening concentration. This is, this is something that happens that I know many of you have experienced. With the first and second jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration, there is much delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one aspect of the direct experience of jhana itself. And at this point, all forms of ill will are temporarily completely inhibited. And next, the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, sweet, easeful happiness, and the word for this in Pali is sukha, which in its maturity is, it's not a pleasant bodily feeling as it matures, but a blissful, contented mental feeling. And this occurs to varying degrees with the development and the deepening of concentration. Again, something many of you have experienced to varying degrees. And then it occurs much more profoundly in the third jhana. And at that point, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are completely, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of deep concentration. The Pali word is ikagata. Again, occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration. And then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during the absorption in the fourth jhana. And this is the experience of absolute centeredness, balance, and equanimity. 
And at that point, sensuous desire for anything during that time is eliminated. As samadhi or concentration develops and as it moves along, and the imperfections, the states that corrupt the natural purity of the heart, the natural purity of the mind, when at least some of these imperfections have been very clearly let go and temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished. And, as I said earlier, they've been weakened at that point as well. At that time, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected with the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and often to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves at least as partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment, without any personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, they're removed. They disappear with the calm and the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment, this is sometimes the hard part, when pleasure is felt without any attachment, without any identification, personal identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deepened concentration. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and heart are very strong, And so in this light, the skill that's been developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of raga, the Pali word that literally 
translates as unwholesome passion and is often used synonymously with desire and craving, attachment and clinging, which is the core cause of dukkha, the core cause of suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of unwholesome thought and emotion when it's arisen, or a provocative sense, uh, a, a particular provocative in, uh, sense door input, but will uh, will be aware of it, um, but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediacy following my, the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging. A similar image. Uh, that was often used during the time of the Buddha, which is, can be used any time, right now, was that of the water rolling off a lotus leaf or the rolling off the feathers of a duck. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or three levels, so to say, of concentration that uh, can develop and serve our insight practice. The first of these is called momentary concentration. And this is the development and the growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another. One object after another the development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second type or level of concentration is called access concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration. And it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as having a similar intensity and depth as jhana concentration, but it's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. The mind in excess concentration is very malleable. It's able to move from one object to another object, even though it contains close to the same intensity and the, deeply, the same intensity of the deeply absorbed states of jhana. So from this perspective, 
Access concentration can be very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And as I've already mentioned, during the uh, time that the mind is, uh, during that time, the mind is temporarily totally purified of all unwholesome mind states. While at the same time, unwholesome mind states are profoundly weakened in the long run. Though they're not totally, finally eliminated. It's really only through a vipassana, through insight practice, that the unwholesome and afflictive states are completely and totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, particularly momentary concentration. Especially when we begin to meet the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less and less attachment and aversion and identification, but rather with an interested and investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and very concerted effort that actually is not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not absolutely necessary for a profound and potentially liberating vipassana, potentially liberating insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, Slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet, we could say absorb, into experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of just what's taking place but with no pondering, no commentary, no inner commentary, no thinking about what's occurring, but meeting experience barely, meeting experience directly. In this slide, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times, and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the bodhisattva, and I'll break that word down for those of you that may not know what it means, bodhi translates as awakening, as an enlightenment, and sata is a being uh, dedicated 
having the strong intention to awaken, having the strong intention to bodhi. Uh, The bodhisattva, it's said that the bodhisattva Siddhartha Gautama asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth. It was an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally, sat up in the meditation posture, comfortably and quietly, under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. He was observing the scene unfolding before him with a very open and alert and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything. He was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows. He noticed the shimmering uh, coming up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythms of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and worms and broken bodies of the mice that were left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring and devouring and suffering and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, the beauty, of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and very deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene that was going on before him. And in his heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, Nothing to add, nothing to take away. No picking, no choosing. As he silently sat, quite still and quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, and taking all this in without prejudice, without attachment, and finding himself all alone, it's said that he quite spontaneously and he's remembering this, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration, 
and it said it was the first jhana, through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure and happiness. That was not born out of desire for, not born out of clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a very deep intuitive understanding was seeded that day. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body and the mind, and then remembering this childhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha, could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following up on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and assurance uh, <laughs> that this was, in fact, a footstep on the path to liberation. And he resolved then to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for liberation, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At this most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, the anger, anguish, and hatred all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, let go of, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself, and then putting up with them, or trying to live through them, or toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships, or by struggling, by trying really hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices, or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, How many times in small, even maybe in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies, various situations, activities, relationships, that created hardship or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life, maybe even extreme hardship or austerity, and in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking, just as he did, that this would somehow 
bring a sustaining joy, happiness, and ease into your life. We've all done that to some degree. Potentially, a certain kind of strength might be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, we could say, would, will never be seen, felt, or known with this way as being our primary way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood, his remembering these, this childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that it would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, within a heart, that is secluded, that's free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run all the time by the energies of greed, of clinging, of fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, of a mind that is liberated, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and in his case, uh, for him it was jhana, was a footstep on the path to awakening an important and useful step on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it in his greater discourse to Sakaka, one of his disciples, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure, since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop at that point engaging in extreme austere practices. And then very soon he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree. He goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. And then he says, and with that, with each of these pleasurable abidings, as he calls them, 
In the Buddha's words, he says, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity, he tells Sakaka that then he systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now very famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No difference in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away, nothing to run from. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind made up, often quite absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be or isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true and definitely know is not true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up, a mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in. Keeping us in conflict, keeping us shut off to the vastness of possibility keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier this evening, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of virtue, the current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us across, along and across, the great and often challenging river of life. And they carry us to the other side, to the side of peaceful, easeful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life with the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samadhi, the development of concentration, 
possibly, maybe, including states of deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, are beautiful, potentially healing, and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used toward our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so, as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years after the story from the Buddha's life that I've just shared. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama, thanks to his diligent and powerful six years of practice, here we are, exploring and learning from his direct experience and from his inspired and amazing gift of clarity in his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with a deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful human qualities will, without a doubt, serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya and without a doubt are some of the basic roots and the basic forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. I'd like to close this, the talk this evening with a poem um, by Mary Oliver that speaks to this evening's topic um, in her quite unique and beautiful way, and in relationship uh, to this evening's topic in a somewhat oblique uh, and yet moving way. And the title of this poem by Mary Oliver is Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and I finally heard him among the first leaves Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness. And that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled sprinkled upward like rain rising 
And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was a thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen. Everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then. Open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.